pray. Well, welcome. Welcome to Ironworks Church and welcome to the children. So glad that you are with us today. Great to have you with us. This morning, I want to talk to you about giving, about giving and money. And children, I know that probably, probably by this point, you have kind of picked up that this is an important subject because you hear daddy and mommy talk about it. And when they talk about it, they're always so serious. When they're talking about money. So you know it's an important thing. So what I want you to do, kids, for your drawing, your first drawing is to draw a lot of it. I want you to draw a lot of money, riches, gold and silver, whatever you can think of, a lot of money, since it seems to be so important to your parents, right? So draw that, and if you're good and all that kind of stuff, you get a prize at the end. You get a special money prize, and parents, we're going to help you out in teaching your kids about money with this special prize. All right, so for the rest of us, why am I talking about money? Well, I know some of you here in this church, I know, are quite generous, very generous. I just see how you're living your lives. I know you're generous in giving to this church. I don't know who you are because I make it a point not to know who gives what around here. But I just see other parts of your lives. I know that you're, you're very generous givers. But then I also know some of us are struggle, struggle with this. They have a difficulty in kind of knowing, you knowing, like, where, where, what do I do with my money? I don't feel like I have enough money to be giving it uh, away others, and especially religious kind of giving. So what I want to do for us this morning is take us into the heart of generous giving, where it comes from, religious, especially religious giving. And I wanted to start out with a quotation that I put in the beginning of your bulletin. Sometimes you get a meditation or reflection in the beginning of your bulletin to help you set, the, set what you're thinking about as you come in. If you're sitting there, you can look at the beginning of the bulletin. And I had a quote there by Daniel Dennett. I don't know if you know that name, but he's one of uh, what used to be called the New Atheists. And I don't think they're so new anymore. They used to be called the New Atheists. This was a group of, of guys adamant in their atheism. And he had a quotation here where he, he says, you know, there aren't any surveys that tell us that religious people actually are more sensitive to the needs of others or unselfish than others. And it's one of these quotes where it shows that Daniel Dennett really doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, that actually there's a lot of data, there's a lot of survey data over decades that show what I say in the next quote, which I give you from Jonathan Haidt, who's sociologist at the University of Virginia. And what, he's, what he kind of brings out is that actually there's a tremendous amount of survey data that shows that religious people are, are far and away more generous than another demographic in giving, not only giving to religious causes, but giving to secular causes as well. Just far and away, there's, there's really no comparison there. And why is that? It's because um, religion actually does make people generous. That religious faith, especially faith in, in, in Christ's commitment uh, to Christ, actually does make people generous givers. Because giving or not giving is really a matter that is entirely spiritual. So what I want to do with us to help us this morning is go to the beginning of religious giving. Right back to the first time there was religious giving, at least it recorded in the Bible. We're going to go to a, a story very early in the Bible, a curious story, really, near the start of the Bible, because it shows us, as we read it, 
where generous giving comes from, and this is something that folks like Daniel Dennett can't see, but where generous giving comes from is in finding your reward elsewhere. Please stand as Eddie comes to read us about this story from the life of the man Abram. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, 14 verses 10, verses 10 through the end, and um, chapter 15, verse 1. At this time, Amaphrophel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Pedaleomor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, the salt sea. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills." The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people." After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the throng of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Please uh, make yourself comfortable. Thank you, Pat. Okay, the story that you just heard, I want to say two things about it. 
uh, first this morning, and that is that it's a story of history and that is a, it is a story of bravery, of great bravery. And I, when I say it's a story of history, I mean that the kind of fingerprints of historical, of the historical nature of it are all over um, the passage. Uh, so, for example, we can start here. All right, I wonder if we can switch this so I can see the pointer. Is that possible? Uh, yeah, so while Phil is looking at that, um, it's coming up in the other way. This was an account that was, it's, it's occurring in the first book of, what's called the first book of Moses. You're good. Thank you, sir. Written, um, written, oh, from the mid-second millennium to kind of later second millennium uh, during that time period, B.C. And uh, this, is, this is something that's important to recognize. It's attested in the New Testament that this authorship was Moses's. Uh, of this book. It's about this area in the southern part of Israel, this landlocked valley called in the passage the Valley of Siddam, uh, but we might know it as the Dead Sea area. And here's a, here's a picture of it. It's, uh, if you don't know much about it, it's this, as I say, landlocked valley that is the lowest point on the surface of the earth. And it has a lot of interesting features about it. And it is there uh, with a very high concentration of salt right now. And uh, it, I, I say um, these marks of history are on the passage because if you look at a verse like verse 10, and it talks about these guys falling into tar pits uh, is what they call them. But actually, if you go kind of in this area uh, of the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea these days, you'll see signs that say, stay on the trail. Uh, don't go off trail. Because uh, there are not what we would call maybe quicksand, but quick mud uh, areas. And if you don't know the area well, it, it can swallow up a car. If, uh, it can uh, surprisingly all, you know, swallow up more than a car. And so if, you're, if you don't know the area and, and you walk off trail, you might end up like this guy um, who's uh, having trouble there. So in the same way that verse 10 is talking about, we can see that happening today. But there's a, a kind of even more uh, strong reason why we can tell this is an account of Moses, a historical account written by Moses about something that happened in history. And the reason is geomorphological. How's that? So geomorpho geomorphology is a discipline of being able to tell something about the past and studying and researching, finding out about the past from the current geological structure or the, or the land that is there now. It's a very important discipline, and it's marvelous in that we can really tell things sometimes about what an area was like in the past through geomorphology. And this area that we're talking about, the Valley of Siddam, or Sidam, called in, in the passage, in the south there, that is where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, would have been. It's hard to tell exactly where, but the, the most likely place of, of where Sodom and Gomorrah would, would have been is, is in, the, in the Salt Sea, now underwater. 
Um, and it's in this southern part here that uh, sometimes you see people going swimming. There's Lydia <laughs> floating in the, in the South uh, Salt Sea. And, you know, she does, she's, she's not sitting on anything. She's just floating there, her and her toes. Um, and, and it's right that area that, uh, that we see where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. Um, and it's important because uh, geomorphologists, in conjunction with archaeologists, have studied this area and are able to tell us that the sea level of the Dead Sea or Salt Sea has, has fluctuated a great deal in the past from different eras. And you can see it happening even today. So, for example, here's a picture of, uh, you can see the Salt Sea in the background um, here. Got my pointer. Thank you, Phil. And uh, what I want you to see is this sign in the beginning, if you look closely, this sign in the foreground here is telling you where the sea level was in 1984. And so it used to be these steps. You would come down these steps, this ramp, and you would go into the Salt Sea right here. Not anymore. Salt Sea is way over there. You can see it also from the side here in this uh, picture. This used to be a pier at the Salt Sea. So you would come down here, and the water level used to be way up here. That's why it was a pier. Now it's not a pier anymore. It's more like an overlook <laughs> here. Just to give you an example in modern times how this can happen. And what we know is that the, the water level of the Dead Sea, uh, during the patriarchal period, during the time when Abram would have lived, um, was, was so low that the the whole bottom part of the Dead Sea was dry. The, the northern part is, is deep, so that doesn't dry up. But the whole southern area where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been was completely dry and could become uh, fertile. So that was a 300-year period during which, you know, the life of Abram took place and, and this, this war that we're talking about in the passage when it would have happened. It was completely dry. Then the sea level started to rise, and from another 300-year period, from about 1500 B.C. to about 1200 B.C., there was a sea there. But then the sea, and it could go all the way up so that it was against the canyon walls, but then the sea started to recede again. And so from about 1200 to about 100 B.C., it was dry again. It wasn't a sea there. So I want you to think about that as you look at verse 3. Okay? This is a reason why we know this is a historical account. Because what verse 3 says is that when this was being written, the person says, you know, this happened in the valley of Sidon. And Sidon, by the way, it's the Salt Sea. So what we know is this has to have been written in a time when there was a sea. But also somebody had a record to a previous time when there wasn't a sea. And the only time when that would have been is during the time of Moses. And the only way he could have known this is if he had uh, reliable records that there used to not be a sea there. And this is where this story took place. Because otherwise, by his time, people would have forgotten there would have even been a sea. And if it took place much after this, if this were written, say, in the exile, as people claim, people wouldn't have even remembered um, that there was a sea there. 
So, you see, the account, the only time this could have been written is if somebody had the account as it happened, but in a time when there was a sea. In other words, in the time of Moses. That's what I mean when I say this is a historical story. It's a story of history. And that's important to know, not only to uh, understand it, but also, and to believe it, but also because it's such an extreme story. It's such a story of unusual bravery. What do I mean by that? This is a story that just shows something extraordinary happened in these events. Abraham did not have much to do with these, you know, warring kings. There were these kings in this area of, of, of the southern part of Israel, and they rebelled against powers to the north, and um, Abram just decided to get involved, no doubt because his, his nephew was involved in those that were taken. These, this four-king coalition came down, punished the rebellious kings, plundered their area, and the rulers took the people and the plunder and left, went back up north. And so what we see in these, in these verses, and I invite you to keep this passage open as I refer to it, verses 15 through 16, verse 17, verse 21, we see this story of Abraham's intercession for, the, for Sodom and Gomorrah, not the last time that he will intercede. But here he intercedes for them. His heart is towards rescuing these people. In this case, at this time, militarily. But what does he do? Let me show you by means of uh, this is where uh, this is looking from the west over the valley as uh, Abram would come out and look over the sea from Beersheba. So I just want to show you a map to give you an idea of what Abram did. Um, just to place yourself here, this is the land of Israel. Here's the Mediterranean Sea over here. Here's Jerusalem. Okay, up here um, is the northern area. Here we see the Sea of Galilee, right? Here's the Jordan River. Here's the Dead Sea area. And you can see the southern part of the Dead Sea is more shallow, right? And this is where the action was taking place down here. But if you'll notice what the text tells us is that when Abram got involved, he went, he took this small, this small you know, band of his, 300 people, 300 guys or so, and he traveled all the way from here, up, 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 over the top, into the area of Dan. You see that um, in the passage. And actually, verse 15, he goes north of Damascus. Here's Damascus up here. Okay, so Israel actually uh, always has you know, powers from the north around Damascus coming down and attacking it. Nothing new about that. It happens today. It's happening as I speak, right? So Abram, though, goes back. He rescues all of the hostages at his own risk. He's, he, he has to equip all these guys to make this trip. If you were driving, it would take you about five or six hours to drive all the way from here to here. If you're traveling by foot or by camel, even if you're try to move quickly with a group, you're taking most of a week to get from all the way down here to up here. And then you're rescuing all of the people. It isn't just pick up lot and leave. He rescues all of the people at considerable risk, considerable danger, makes the trip back down to bring the people back down to, to where they came from. So 
It's an incredible thing that he accomplished there, rescuing every, all the hostages and bringing them back. And you can tell how great this deed is when he gets back in verses 21 through 24. Other, the other kings feel that Abram is entitled to whatever plunder there was in the recovery. You see, the king of Sodom comes out and says, I, you, you take it. You take all of it because of what you just accomplished. And in the midst of this, verse 19, this mysterious character, Melchizedek, he comes out to meet him, and Abram gives him money. Why? It was Abraham who carried the people. It was Abram who protected the people. It was Abram who exposed himself and his own to this danger. And Melchizedek just comes out after it's all over. He blesses him, and he gets paid. <laughs> I mean, big deal. How would you like Melchizedek's job, right? Abraham was the one who did it. He did it all. He risked. He fought. He won. Melchizedek gets paid. Why? And here, friends, here is the heart of the religious motivation to give. It's right here. So I want to look at it with you. That's why I want to look at it carefully with you so you see what it was that Melchizedek gave to Abraham and why he gave him this 10%, this tithe as he does. Okay, so um, children, as you're drawing, the next thing you want to draw is a picture of a person. Pick a person that you know. Make a person big. And I want you to draw a window in the person and show what's on the inside. Okay? I want you to show the insides of a person. Draw a window. Draw a person and draw the window on this person and show what's inside. You could take this whatever direction you would like, okay? I want you to draw what you see inside a person. So you have a window into a person, right? Because that's what we're going to be talking about. If you look at what Melchizedek gave to Abram, one way you can look at it and you can say nothing. You know, if you're Daniel Dennett, you look at this and say, what did Melchizedek give to Abram? Nothing. Or you could look and see that what he gave him was critical to Abram's life critical to it because if you have entered into the cosmos of God there's another way of looking at it that opens up to you okay if you are finding your reward elsewhere Melchizedek provides the crucial ingredients to Abram's life here so I want to look at this with you let's um, <clears throat> look at this closely okay three things I see in this passage that Melchizedek is giving to Abram. Three things. And it's not just because it's a sermon. I know it's a sermon. It's supposed to have three points, right? But no, I really do think there are three things in here that we can see and identify are, are there that Melchizedek is giving to Abram, okay? The ministry of Melchizedek, number one, first thing. Melchizedek gives the right interpretation of the events of Abram's life. Melchizedek gives the interpretation of Abram's life to him. Do you see this? God Most High, says Melchizedek, verse 20, God Most High has delivered these successes into your hand. God Most High has delivered these successes into your hand. 
Okay? Unlike all the kings who come out and are understandably overwhelmed, impressed with what Abram has just done, and they want to say, this is you, Abram, you're the man. You have done it. You see what Melchizedek comes and he says, listen to you. Listen to me, Abram. Let me give you the right interpretation of your life. This has happened to you because God is blessing you. This has happened to you because God has his hand on you. You think maybe you have done all this by your own strength, by your own work. But no, the reason that these things have occurred is because God is doing something through you. You went up there, you and your 319 guys, and what just happened happened because of what God is doing in your life, because God has his hand on you, because God is blessing you. He wants to work through you. And that is why you have had this success. Crucial. And, and Abram heard that. He recognized it. And he said, yes, this I need. He knew he needed this. Because what was Melchizedek doing? He was connecting Abram to worship, to worship of his God. That's the first thing. And friends, you come right down to it. <clears throat> this is what you get from your community of faith. You get a correct interpretation of your life. You get all sorts of voices all through the week telling you different things about what your life means and what's going on in your life and how to understand it and how not to understand it. Or maybe you're going through something you're absolutely confused about what's going on. You're like, I don't understand how God could be doing this. What is he doing here? It is through the community of faith, the means of grace, you come here, you get the authoritative word from the pulpit. You get the fellowship and, and, and what you receive from the other saints as well. You get prayer. You get the sacrament. You come to understand what your life is about. You come to understand the correct interpretation of your life. That's what you get through the ministry of the church. And if you connect to that, you realize it's critical in your life. It's, a, it's providing a critical ingredient for your life. That's what Abraham recognized. That's why he gave so generously. That's why he wanted to give. He was connected to worship. You understand when you come to church, when you are not just come to, to the service, but are, but are involved in the life of the church and the means of grace that are here. You begin to understand, oh, I see, God is, God is humbling me in what's going on here in your life. Oh, oh, I get it. God is encouraging me in what I'm doing. Oh, wait, God has this purpose that he is using me for the sake of my neighbors. Oh, I understand what he's doing now. He's changing me. You can't put a price on that. That's what Abram recognized. That's number one. Gave him the right interpretation of his life. Number two, second thing in the ministry of Melchizedek. Melchizedek connects Abram's religious devotion to Abram's culture. Okay, he connects Abram's religious devotion and connects him to what's going on and how things are understood in his culture. Now, I hope this is not an overly subtle point, but this is something that's going on in the passage which you might not see when you first read it. But I want you to notice something with me. I want you to look at how God is named in these verses, 18 to 22. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 22. God is named. And what is he named? Well, in English, they translate it as 
God Most High. In the Hebrew, it's El Elyon. El Elyon, God Most High. Well, let me tell you something about this name. This name is an unusual way for the Bible to describe God. And we could say, yeah, God's Most High, but this is not used. In fact, this is the only place that the name El Elyon is used for God in the whole book of Genesis. Okay? Only place. So there's something specific that's going on here. The reason why it isn't used as often is because this is also the head god of the Canaanite pantheon. You know, Canaanite had different religions, different gods. And the head god of the Canaanite pantheon was called El Elyon. So you can look at it one way and say, yeah, we can see that God, it, our, the God that we worship is the most high God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And so you see what's going on here. The other name for God, the kind of covenant name for God, is not used until verse 22 when Abram speaks. So you see what Melchizedek says, God most high, God most high, God most high. When Abram turns around, he follows Melchizedek's lead and he says, yes, I lifted, I've lifted my hand up to God most high, Yahweh. And he also says, Yahweh, which might be a little anachronistic. The patriarchs knew God. The way he revealed himself to them was El Shaddai. But, uh, you know, what Moses is trying to do with his audience, I think, is, is telling them God, Abraham is connecting to our God, the God that we worship. And he uses this name here, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So what, what, again, what Melchizedek says is El Elyon, El Elyon. And when Abram then responds, he says, yes, I've lifted my hand to Yahweh El Elyon. So what he's doing is he's following Melchizedek's lead, and he's saying, okay, this is how my culture understands the divine. I will enter into that and understand that it connects to the God that I serve. In other words, Melchizedek is teaching him how to engage with his culture. And he's also teaching the people around him. You know, all the kings around him are seeing what's going on. And Melchizedek is connecting them to Abram as well. Because when you see in verses 21 through 24, it rejects the plundered wealth of six kings offered by Sodom. You know what the next question on the king of Sodom's lips is, right? Why? Why are you turning down all this wealth? What's going on? And it's because, this is before the kings, Melchizedek wants them to see that Abram, holding in his hand the wealth of kings, doesn't take it. So they see his reward is elsewhere. So in engaging here with the culture, bringing them into what they understand about the divine. Melchizedek is helping Abram to connect, to be who he is. He wants, Melchizedek wants, people, wants them to see, look who is in your midst. Recognize the importance of this man who finds his reward elsewhere. And, you know, this goes on in, in, in Abraham's engagement with Sodom and Gomorrah. They go on in this book, some, some terrible things happen there, but Abram's heart is constantly towards them to see who could be rescued from them, just as he did here. No doubt in Abram's mind that the, the, the words that God's promise perhaps 
resonating there. All nations shall be blessed through you. How to engage the culture. Friends, this same thing happens to you in your community of faith. When you come to church, you're taught here how to understand what's going on in the culture and how God is working in the culture. The good things about the culture, the bad things about the culture. How to discern those things. Very important role that the church plays in your life. How do I understand what's going on in my culture? How do I talk to the people that I love in my culture? How do we reach out to them? What do we do? This is what happens in church. So that you can come here and you can say, oh, I see how God is working now in my industry. I see how to be able to talk to people about what's going on. Oh, I see God's reason for art. I can understand that now and what my culture is, is doing. And, and here we say, we're here to say, look, there's Jesus Christ. There's Jesus Christ. There's Jesus Christ in your life. Out there in the world, there he is. So you can engage the culture with affectionate restraint. That's the second thing. And so we have this uncommon ministry in a church, in our church, of intercession for our, for our city. See, who is there to be rescued? Who is there interceding for them? So you, you take these things, friends. Again, what did Melchizedek do? You look at it cynically, nothing. You look at it redemptively, and he gave Abram the critical ingredients for his life. You can only see that if God is your reward. And so, friends, was born the pattern of the tithe. When it says that Abram gave him a tenth, he's tithing to Melchizedek. Okay? A tithe of everything that came to him. This was a practice that was then adopted and repeated by Abram's grandson, Jacob. And then many years later, codified into the legal code of Moses, by Moses. Moses took this and made it the basis of their financial system in his legal code. 10% giving of the tithe. Actually, if you add it up, they were actually giving more than 10% uh, of their income. But the tithe, the 10% was the basis, which is no doubt why Moses is telling his audience this story here. He's saying, you want to know where this goes to? It goes back to our forefather, Abram, Abraham, right? It's Abram who was later named Abraham by God. 10% 10% of your produce, 10%, excuse me, 10% of your flocks, 10% of your income. And then the tithe goes on and is reasserted, reaffirmed by Jesus Christ in the New Testament as well. And that is why it should be a pattern for us. That is why we do it. That is why we make it our practice here. So this is not just a nice historical event uh, in the life of Abram, even though it's a a story of bravery and a story of history. It's also a pattern for him and for the people of this covenant. And that's why I'm talking to you about it today. You know, when I was um, earlier on in my uh, pastoring, I never used to talk about money with people. I always was like, "Mm, I don't want to do that, you know. And I was rebuked by a young woman in my congregation uh, in the village church, I remember her name was Sydney Bertner. <laughs> she came up to me and she said, Sam, why aren't you talking to us about money? Why aren't you talking to us about giving? 
I was like, you know, you pay me, pay my salary. It feels a little self-serving. She was like, no. She rebuked me. She said, you know, the Bible talks as much about money as about these other uncomfortable topics, and you don't seem to have any problem talking about these other things, you know. I said, well, you got a point. You got a point there. So... I recognize that this is important for the people of God. Some of you might have trouble. You have to say, yeah, I just, I just don't have enough to give. I just don't have it. You, know? you need to recognize that Abraham's giving here wasn't, wasn't kind of un, in proportion to the size of his budget. I mean, it was proportion to the size of the budget. It wasn't dependent upon his budget at all. If you... If your church connects you to Abraham's reward, then what happens is the voluntary giving that you do becomes a window in your soul. You really are able to see whether you are taking Abram's reward as your reward. And it's very important for it to be voluntary, to remain voluntary. You know, if you're in a Jewish synagogue, you pay dues for your seat. That's the way they do it. If you're, you're in a synagogue, you pay dues that you're kind of paying, you know, for your seat in the synagogue. And, you know, that's a reasonable practice. Organizations got to run, got to, needs funding to run. So it makes perfect sense for you to kind of have a system where you're paid, where you have obligatory dues that you have to pay. We will never do that here. I will never be a pastor of a church that does that. You know why? Because just what the children are drawing Voluntary giving gives you a window on your soul. I will never take that away from you. Very important for it to be voluntary, voluntary on your part. For us to see where, what it is that we're taking as our reward. We need this constant task of voluntary giving to tell us where we find our reward. If you have trouble, if you really are like, I'm sorry, my finances are out of control. We have help for you in this church. There are a number of people around here in this church that can help you. Scott Enright Others in this church, they can, they can help you get, get control of your finances if that is the trouble that you're having. We are happy to do that, wanting to do that for you. And this is a part of it. All right, children, number three drawing that you're going to do. Okay, your last drawing here is a big feast. I want you to draw feast. And when I mean a feast, I mean if you are going to go to a place and just eat for three days, like what would you want to eat? Right? All the best food in the world. Okay, I want you to draw the feast. Okay? Draw that great big feast of all the food that you would love to eat. And while you're doing that, I might um, kind of come back to uh, the rest of us here. I know some of you here are real note takers, and you're probably wondering, hey, where was number three? You said there were three things. I only counted two, right? Some of you, I know, you got me there. Well, there is number three, and we find it in verse 18. The third thing that Melchizedek gives to Abram, the third thing that he does, verse 18, he comes out, and he gives him bread and wine. See that? He is edifying Abram with bread and wine. He is refreshing him with the bread and the wine, really giving him a banquet there when he comes back. 
So you see what Melchizedek is doing. Physically, he's refreshing him, but in a deeper way also, he is giving him refreshment in his God. The God most high, which he understands is Abram's God. He's nourishing him in his faith because, you know, deep down, Abram was actually pretty weak in faith. Deep down, Abram, you know, struggled at times with his faith. And he said, I know I need this. I need this nourishment of my faith. And that's another reason why he gave his tithe to Melchizedek. He said, this is something that's an important part of what needs to happen in the world, what needs to happen in my life. And so I'm going to give this, um, give this money because this is, this is, this is, and important nourishment for me and all those uh, of my own as well. Well, I don't, I don't know if I um, have to draw the connection here to uh, you. probably already realize this is what we do here. We're not doing anything different than Melchizedek was doing for Abram. Is we're giving you a way to nourish your faith through the sacrament. And you know, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Melchizedek is this important figure, a predecessor, a messianic figure. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are recognized he was a precursor to a one to come. And the New Testament is rather explicit about in the book of Hebrews. He says, you know, Melchizedek was actually a sign for us to the real high priest, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that Melchizedek to us. So tithing, if you tithe your church these days, what you're really doing is saying, Jesus Christ is my reward. And what we do here on Sundays, the reason why we have the bread and the wine every Sunday here is because we know that we're weak in faith. We're not all that different from Abram. And we know we need that encouragement. We need that, um, that communion. So stand with me now. This communion table is the priest's bread and wine for you. Because nowadays, what you're saying is, Jesus Christ is my great reward. And the real conclusion to the passage comes in that last verse. You know, this is one, another one of these places where they divide up the chapters and verses afterwards, and they kind of mess it up because, uh, you know, as, as Patty pointed out, that last verse we read was actually chapter 15 verse 1 it really should have been part of the previous story because after all of this happens and Abram takes God as his reward God shows up in his life and what does he say in in verse 1 he says you know Abram you've taken me as your great reward I will be your reward I am your reward I bring you a reward verse 1 I am your reward when Abram makes God his reward, God responds, yes, I will be your reward. You don't have to be petrified about losing your job. You don't have to be petrified about where it's going to come from. I will be your reward. And, and I want the same for you. The dear Ironworks Church, make him your reward by coming now to this feast of bread and wine.